Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. Thank you again for joining us today. And I have a wonderful treat for you. Uh, This is an honor for me personally because I have been a fan and a follower of his father's work. This man that I have today, Tom Ziegler, was born into the first family of encouragement and motivation. His father, Zig Ziegler, motivated and encouraged people of all walks of life for many, many years, touching millions and millions of people globally. And Tom is carrying on that legacy today as president of Ziegler Incorporated. And it is my honor to welcome in Tom Ziegler to the Intentional Encourager podcast. Tom, how are you today? Well, you know, I tell everybody I'm, I'm better than good, but that's like genetically required. I love that because <laughs> you're, you're so right because, again, you know, when you live in a family of encouragement and you live around that, it's hard not to. Tom, I want to start here with you and where we are now recording this in the midst of, of COVID-19. What are you doing to stay encouraged yourself and encouraging others on your team? There's a, there's a couple of things. Uh, you know, first is the way I start my day. Uh, it's very intentional. I read, uh, I do devotional, I get encouraging words. Uh, when I work out, I'm almost always either talking to a good friend who's an encourager or listening to material that's helping me grow. Uh, and of course, you know, being from the, from the Ziegler background, it's, it's going to be upbeat and lifting and informational and educational. So those are the two things that I do. And the other thing that I've really uh, been focusing on since COVID-19 started was trying to set up more either calls or Zoom calls with individuals uh, just just to, you know, have that relationship get built and see how I can help and see what's going on in their life. So those are, those are the things that I'm doing. But it, it starts with how I start the day. As you're coaching people and as, you're, as you get requests in and, and you're talking to people on Zoom, what's the biggest challenge that you see a lot of people facing right now in the midst of this pandemic, either personally or professionally? It re- you know, it's really the same thing. I mean, there are real challenges, you know, uh, especially if somebody's business has been interrupted or the work they do is different or no longer there. I mean, that's a real challenge. Most of it, though, is mindset. Most of it is, you know, I, I like to just turn all the problems into possibilities. You know, it's mm-hmm. one of the quotes that I love, uh, you know, well, one of them's behind me. You can have everything in life you want if you'll just help enough other people get what they want. That is my favorite quote of all time. I love that quote, Tom. I'm so glad you got that behind you. But uh, one of my friends named Rabbi Daniel Lapp, and he's he's a very wise, uh, well-known. And he said this, he's, he, he said, you know, when you solve a problem, you're often rewarded with a certificate of appreciation. We call that money. <laughs> And then he said this, 
God is never happier with his children than when they're solving the problems of his other children. And wow. so, you know, to me, to know that the creator of the universe smiles when I solve a problem for somebody else, that's pretty cool. And then I look out right now in the world and it's a target rich environment. There are more problems out there than we can shake a stick. I mean, they're everywhere. And so if we change our mindset from problem focused to possibility and solution focused, and then we take action on it, man, what a great way to spend your day solving problems for other people. And then you get that reward, right? And, and sometimes the reward is, financial sometimes it's spiritual sometimes it's something else but that's what we need to stay focused on and people under pressure and under stress not knowing what the future is going to hold uh that that can spiral in the wrong direction right that that can mm -hmm. go and so that's really the challenge is the way people are feeling and thinking about what's going on do they either see themselves as somebody that life happens to or someone that happens to life. Mm -hmm. And that's really what we've got to own is, hey, we happen to life. Life doesn't happen to us. Tom, do you find yourself, because I, I and I'm going to get into your story in just a few minutes, because you have a fascinating story. You tell a lot of your, your background in history and your book, Choose to Win. But like you, I had a father that in many ways, to a lot of people was larger than life. And it was a lot of pressure on me as his only son, like you are your father's only son. We have a lot of similarities there. I have two younger sisters and you have the rest of your siblings are sisters. Did you ever find yourself struggling to, to kind of live up to the things that your dad did? Or how were you able to find your own lane and move in your own path in life and, and just be the best Tom that you could be? From early on, I never felt pressure from dad or mom to do a certain thing, you know, and, and, and dad was always like, hey, whatever you do, just do it with 100% effort and 100% integrity. So that gave me the ability to go anywhere that I wanted to go. So I started working at the company uh, and you know, it, it was awesome. But as I took more responsibility, especially when I started becoming uh, more of the, you know, the, the spokesperson for the company or the more out in front speaking and doing webinars and things like that. When I first started, I was really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You know, it just, it, especially when I would speak, my stomach would kind of get in knots and and I had to really evaluate that. And I realized that in my head, I thought people wanted me to speak like my father. And then I had to ask myself, is that true? Do they want me to get on stage and be a, a you know, a version of Zig Ziglar? And the answer to that's no, mm -hmm. right? That was never the expectation of the audience. The expectation of the audience was, you know, we want this guy who's getting up to mm -hmm. be the best they can be. So the style, I was under the pressure thinking I needed to, to, to imitate the style and nobody can do that. We all have our own gifts and talents, our own personality. That's the way God created us. But what people did expect was, hey, is he going to live up to the philosophy? Does he believe in character and integrity? You know, those kind of things. 
And so that's a different kind of pressure. That's actually a healthy pressure, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What I can't, if I try to imitate somebody else's personality, they know it's fake mm-hmm. and I can't do it. But if I pour into myself, okay, how can I be the best version of me? Then whatever gifts and talents I have, that's what I focus on developing. But along with that is the responsibility of character and integrity and discipline and hard work and all the things that we teach. That's good. So once I got that straight in my head, that went away too. And then a friend of mine said, uh, he says, what's going on? And I said, well, I'm worried about the legacy. And he looked at me and he said, don't worry, your dad's legacy is sealed. There's nothing you can do about it. You got to focus on your own. And what he was really saying was he was taking the pressure off of me regarding what dad's already done. Okay. If I screw up now, they're not going to blame dad. (laughs) (laughs) That's a hundred percent true, man. That's a hundred percent true. They're going to look I, I remember 2007 or 2008, and I've told you this, but I want to share this for our audience. I heard your dad speak live in Charleston, West Virginia, about about 45 minutes from where I am right now. And he was a part of the Get Motivated Tour. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to go that day. And I took off work and, and one of my colleagues joined me because I wanted to see your dad speak. And Tom, your dad was in, in starting in failing health and things like that with with dementia and, and other things and but man he was so on target the minute he stepped on stage with your sister it was as if everything came back to him and he was just mesmerizing for 15 minutes he would just throw his zig quotes out there and it was just powerful and mesmerizing because in that moment Everything was clear. Everything was clear. And you could see the audience. And I'll never forget looking around the room and people just being blown away by, the, by what he said. It wasn't that Zig Ziglar was in front of us and we were in awe of that. that. That was a part of it. But what he said just dripped with intentionalism and things like that. What was the biggest piece of intentional encouragement that you got from your dad? Oh, that's easy. That was just his unconditional love. It was the, it was your mind. (laughs) You know, it's like, I don't love you because you do this or do that or accomplish that, or, you know, don't do that. It was, Hey, I just love you. And, you know, dad said this, he said the number one uh, cause of a poor self image is the lack of unconditional love. Wow. And so, you know, if every, if every human being just understood that, you know what, we, we love people because God created them. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, we just love them. And so when you go out into the world and, and I get, you know, I've had the, the privilege, the opportunity to travel all over the world and everywhere I go, it's friends and family and Mm -hmm. people I've never met. Some of them grown up listening to dad, you know, so it's like <laughs> we tell all our stories and then, and then others, it's the first time I've met and the first time they've heard of Ziegler, but because I, I was just taught, you know, you just walk in loving everybody who's there. And before you know it, it's like we've known each other for forever. Uh, it's just, a, it's just a great way to lead life. 
I did want to say one thing about, yes, please. about um, your experience hearing dad. Um, the last four years that he spoke, it was after he'd had a pretty, a pretty tough brain injury. He'd fallen, had an accident. And so his short-term memory was robbed. Uh, and he was dealing with other things, too, that we, did, we were just kind of discovering as we went along. It turned out, you know, he had Alzheimer's. Uh, but dad always taught this, this principle, and that is God doesn't, he doesn't use you the way you were, and he doesn't use you the way you will be. He uses you the way you are. And so many times, you know, people will, you'll, they'll have a dream and they'll say, well, I can't do that because of what I did in the past, or I'm not qualified to start that yet because I'm not there yet. Right. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that's not the way it works. We step into it right now. And so dad was always a proponent of, man, you just, you, you take everything you have and, and you do the best you can and you do it with that right motive and that right heart. And so it was so cool to see him go out and live that philosophy out and then just step on the stage. And it was like, he would get filled up. Uh, not only was the audience benefiting from it, but he was too. And the reason that I bring that up is because if we live long enough, somebody we love, and it may be the person in the mirror, is going to have a challenge like that. And you know what? That's okay. Life is meant to be lived the way you are. And when you're open and transparent about that, then you reach people and touch people you never would have reached. And we're dealing with that in my family, Tom, for full disclosure. My wife's grandfather is 98. He's in an assisted living facility. Um, his dementia started for him about three years ago after he turned 95. Amazingly, the state of West Virginia reissued a driver's license to him at 95 years old. But, but again, I understand that because um, with him, with my wife's grandfather, we could see him and, and this pandemic has limited those opportunities greatly, but he could be in really good mind and know everybody and, and then we could see him a day later and, and it's not, it's very different. And so I, I can empathize and relate to that very well. I, I've got to ask you this before I pivot. What is it like for you as the son of, of Zig Ziglar? Again, motivational and encouragement royalty in my mind. When you go into a bookstore, when you're on social media, or when you hear someone and even presidents have quoted your father, what is it like for you when someone quotes your father or you see his work in a bookstore or you see his work out, out in public? What does that do for you internally? You know, that's, I love that. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a huge boost. And, and I'll just give you an example. Um, I never get tired of hearing a Zig story. So when somebody comes up to me and they say, I know you've heard this a thousand times, but I need to tell you, I'm like, I can't hear it enough, right? I just, I, I, I love that. Another question that's, that happens is when, I, when we were growing up and going out and doing stuff, people often, we would be eating dinner or we would be somewhere 
and they were always very courteous, but they might come up at the end of our meal and, and just introduce themselves and want to talk to dad for a minute. And somebody said, well, does that bother you, all those interruptions? And I go, look, this is completely different than a celebrity or a politician or, a, you know, or an athlete because they're not coming up to see if they can get an autograph with an important person. They're coming up to thank dad for the impact that he had on their life. Hmm. And that never gets old. Well, so that's, that's the emotion that I feel, right? When somebody, when I see a book or somebody quotes dad or whatever, that's kind of the emotion that I feel. And, and you know, Tom, I, I, I am a lot the same way. My dad wasn't nearly, didn't affect near the amount of people that, that your dad did. My dad was a fan of your father's as I was a fan of your father's. But when people say something to me about my dad, I, I'm the same way. Because to me, it makes him alive in that moment. It brings him back for just a few moments. And, and as Christians, the comfort we have is knowing where they are your mom and dad both, my, my dad, and knowing that we're going to get to see them again one day and, be, and never have to be separated. And I, I love what you said there, and I, I'm grateful that you shared that with me. Now I want to tell your story because I want, to get, I want folks to get to know Tom. And so take me back as early as you want to take me. What did you want to do growing up? What, where was your passion and your purpose as, as you were growing up? You know, um, the thing that dad and I enjoyed together the most was playing golf. And I played high school golf and then I played college golf. And about halfway through college, I thought, you know, this is a lot of fun. I'm getting pretty good. I wonder how good I could get. So I wanted to uh, become a professional golfer on the PGA Tour. I didn't want to be a like a PGA pro that works at a, at a uh, you know, a country club or something like that. I wanted to be a touring pro. You wanted and, to be out there on Sundays, didn't you? You wanted yeah, to be out there yeah. Thursday through Sunday being on TV. That, yeah. I mean, who doesn't want to do that? Uh, <laughs> That's right. The, the problem is, is, you know, when you look at the amount of talent plus the amount of uh, discipline and the amount of hours that, that uh, it requires to do that, that's a big hurdle. So in college, I started playing and practicing and working on that and, and doing that. Uh, and that's what I thought I was going to do. And, you know, I played in a ton of tournaments and, and got pretty good. And the better I got, the, the more I realized, man, these people out here, these, these people are good. What did uh, you do well? I mean, not to, not to jump in there, but were you, did you hit the ball off the tee well? Could you, were, you, were you good? Was your short? Because there's four for, for those that aren't real – avid golfers there's really four components how well you hit it off the tee how well you hit it from the fairway how your short game is which is around the green 100 yards and in and how well you put it and then the fifth component is when you get into trouble and you hit the ball like me and you hit the ball in the in the in the tall stuff how well you recover what was your best part of your game tom uh, probably consistency. Uh, I didn't get in a lot of trouble. Uh, a really, really good short game. And 
my my length was you know average at best so i wasn't a i wasn't a bomber uh and the and you know so that was that was something and the other thing the the thing that i didn't have was i didn't have that that extra gear um you know i could shoot in the 60s uh but you know the guys on tour on any given day they can shoot 62 <laughs> that's like you know that's something else and, and so, they're hitting it so far it's i mean it's just yeah. ridiculous how far they hit it i remember i mean just just goes back so when i was when i was playing it was old technology right so i mean we had metal woods but the ball was the old ball and everything and uh so then i quit playing you know and tournaments and started focusing on my career and I remember there was a par five um, and when I was playing all the time I would hit like a driver and then a three three iron or sometimes even like a a wood to the green that's you know that's how long it was well then the technology changed and I got a you know new clubs and the new ball and I was out there playing and I hit a five wood and a nine iron to the same hole. <laughs> <laughs> I can only dream of doing that. And, and Tom, a, my dad, when I would play golf with my dad, I had such a bad slice and it was something I could never get corrected. And my dad said, turn your body and make your slice work for you. And I started turning my body, and the ball would actually curve back into the fairway because of the where I was was aiming it. Again, another Ziegler, another Ziegler principle. Zig always talked about aiming for things, and so I, when I did, I turned my body a little bit left because I'm a right-handed golfer, and that ball would curve back into the fairway. And guys, I would play with said, "Man, you hit it a long way, but your ball curves so much to get back in the fairway." <laughs> <laughs> Yep. So yeah. But so, I understand that because I, I'm I'm not a long I don't hit the ball a long way, but if I'm in the fairway, I'm okay. When you were when you were transitioning from playing, when when was that moment for you when you went from okay, I don't think this is gonna be a long term situation for me and started transitioning to career? Was there a moment that you kind of said, What am I doing? I, I really love playing golf but it's not for me. Was that a hard transition for you to, to give that up? Well, there were, uh, you know what, uh, the answer was it a hard transition. It was surprisingly not hard. And the reason was, is I'd given it everything that I had, you know, and I could look back and go, Hey, I gave that a go. Uh, right. The, there were two moments that made that decision happen when it did. The first one is, I was playing in a tournament uh, and this, this course was a long course and it had rained so much and the weather was, was, was bad. Uh, so it was cooler and I really hurt, I hurt my back. So I had, you know, and a lot of golfers have back issue and it's, this is not a life threatening, life changing back injury, unless you're an athlete <laughs> because then you can't practice as much. And I was in the clubhouse, um, you know, and my back's all out. You know, I'd played my round and, and, you know, it was okay. And some guy comes in and they say, hey, you know, the, you know, the, this, the number 16, it was a par five on the back. Uh, some kid hit that green in two today. Well, 
I had hit driver, three wood, and five iron to get on that green. And so kid, this kid is reaching this in two. So he's he's probably hitting driver and maybe a middle iron or or a, a short maybe a seven wood or something like that. I don't know what I don't know if you know, but that kid's name was John Daly. <laughs> so so um, so now we're driving back to Dallas, right? Because we've done a you know I'd gone out of town to play in this tournament, and there's a couple of us in the car two other players and my wife at the time and we're driving back to Dallas and my back is like all torn up. And I kept thinking who, who hits it that far. And, and then in, in the office, I had moved from, you know, the, the warehouse and production, I just moved into sales. And then right after that, I just kind of fell in love with sales. Mm-hmm. And so, and then I went to my instructor. So my teacher at the time was Hank Haney, who's pretty well known. I tell people, yeah, you, you know, I'm the one who got him prepared for Tiger Woods. I mean, that's not true. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, you know, if he, if he could train you, then, then Tiger would be a, a piece of cake. I went to Hank and I said, cause we'd been working together for a couple of years. And I said, look, cause he changed my swing a lot. I, I, I could shoot a good number, but I didn't have a swing that could go low. So that's what we were, we were working on, right? Uh, it was a, was a really repeatable uh, swing. And I said, I said Hank, I, I feel like I'm making a lot of progress, but it's also taking a lot of time. How long before we know? And he looked at me and he said, probably three more years. <laughs> so I was like, my back is out. I'm loving sales. I put a lot of work into it. Uh, and I thought, you know what? I, I love this other thing now as much as I thought I loved this, but the, the deck is getting stacked. So that's, that's how I made the decision. But here's, you asked me to start this off. You know, what is the challenge that people are facing today, you know, in the pandemic? And I said, well, it's mindset. So here's an interesting thing. And after college, I went to Hank and I said, should I turn pro? And back then they didn't have like an official mini tour, right? There wasn't, there wasn't all the development tours they have now. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh no, don't turn pro. I want you to play as many of the big amateurs as you can. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, the, the guys who played the mini tour, they've got, they've got great swings and terrible attitudes. Wow. And so he was basically telling me that the difference between somebody who's on the mini tour doing, you know, with is and the difference on the PGA tour. A lot of it's just belief. It's just mindset. Um, so that's like, you can apply that to anything in, in life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because a lot of times the golfer's biggest competition in that final round is not the guy that, that he is trying to catch or if he's in the lead trying to keep from catching him, Tom. A lot of times it, it can be the, the resistance to, to think that every shot has to be perfect, right? Because, you know, it, it, when, when – and I remember – this comes to mind, John Vandeville in the British Open probably 20 years ago 
when he had a lead and just all of a sudden fell apart to the point that he was taking off his shoes and socks because he hit the ball in the water and he was trying to go in and, and try to recover it out there. And it's a very famous, if you follow golf, it's a very famous and, and poignant moment in a major championship where you see this guy just come off the rails. He's got the British Open one, and it just goes off the rails. So, yeah, that was – I'm glad you brought that up. When you finally stopped playing competitive golf and you, and you played for the last time, what was that like for you knowing that you were leaving something you had loved and devoted so much time to? Because there's a lot of people that – and it's the 10,000-hour rule, Tom. You know, Malcolm Gladwell says 10,000 hours is going to take you to become great. And you – probably all the rounds you played with your dad and all the practice rounds and, and driving range and things like that, you, you did every bit of that. What was that like for you when you finally said, okay, enough is enough. Let's move to the next thing. Well, you know, the good thing about golf is you don't have to do that um, because I still played for probably another 10 years, uh, maybe 15 years up until my early 40s in, a, in different tournaments, you know, amateurs and, and stuff. So and dad and I played in a Texas father-son tournament probably at least 10 times. Uh, and so the, the intensity and the preparation and all that was different, but I was still out there kind of getting that competitive thing. I just wasn't – I was trying to delay the demise of my game rather than trying to make it better. <laughs> so – <laughs> Isn't that the way it is for all of us? You know, know. us weekend hackers. We we know at some point it's not going to get any better, no matter how many times we go to the driving range. We just, it is what it is. You know. I'll tell you another funny story, and this is uh, this is this is the advantage of wisdom over talent. Uh, when I when I was not able to practice like I was. I started looking at the game completely different. And so instead of relying on my talent to hit a delicate finesse shot, which looks really pretty, uh, I started just playing the statistics on everything. And my scoring average didn't change. It's, it stayed the same for like four or five years. And, and now you see all the science in the game of the great players they are maximizing both talent, creativity, and percentages. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I wish, you know, and now a lot, of the, a lot of the pros that you see, they started getting really serious about it when they were, you know, four, five, six, seven years old. And then, then they get coached in it at that time, too, about how to approach it, how to think about it, how to create that best swing for them as they grow. Mm -hmm. And I didn't, I didn't even really – uh, think about golf until I was like 15 or 16. So, you know, there's a lot of things that make it up. But isn't that interesting that you can step back from a wisdom perspective and say, you know, what's going to give me the best chance of winning here versus trying to hit the Hail Mary shot every single time? Yeah. yeah. Well, but and Tom, I, I think that's a unique perspective for today in where we sit today because there are a lot of business owners they may have a retail operation and because of certain regulations that are out there now, they have to reduce their hours. They can only let so many people in the building. 
and, and, and things like that. Maybe many small businesses have had customer attrition because of certain things like that. And it's given them more time. I love what you said there about wisdom and talent because there is a definite business application to where we are today. Absolutely. And this is what, this is my takeaway for today on that principle. You know what? It's relationships. It is, you know, you can have marketing funnels and you can have social media and you can do ad campaigns and you can do all this technology. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you build solid relationships with people, that's what's going to win the day. Mm -hmm. And, you know? and, I, and you know, that's the thing is, and I mean to interrupt you there, but that's the thing is, is that you have to figure out for yourself, just like when you with competitive golf, if you're a small retailer, you're not going to be Walmart. You're not going to be the, the big behemoth. You're not, Maybe you in, in your market you compete in, you don't hit the ball a long way, but you're really consistent. Like you mentioned, you're really consistent with everything that you do. And at the end of the day, you don't need to be the, the longest hitter on tour to score consistently. And I think, Tom, that translates into business. I got to ask you, when you, joined your, your, when you joined Ziggler, and you mentioned earlier that, that you started in operations and then transitioned into sales, at that point, how involved did you and your dad get in, in running the business together? And what were some of the things that, that he shared with you that have carried you today as you run the company? Well, you know, dad recognized early that his talent was making speeches and writing books. <laughs> so, so on a day-to-day -day business operational thing, I never spent much time with dad. He hired people to do the operational leading of the business. And he made speeches and wrote books. That was what he wanted to do. That was his focus. So on the day-to-day -day stuff, uh, business-wise, we, did, we didn't do that much. Um, but when he spoke and, and, you know, one of the things, I, if I could go back in time and tell my younger self something different to do, uh, I would have... I would have put a plan in place where every corporate engagement that he went to, that I went with him, you know, I, I would do one or two of those a year. Uh, and when I look back at it, that's when I learned the most because I was, I was meeting the owners and leaders of these huge organizations and companies got to see how they uh, did business and how dad interacted with them. That's what I should have, um, you know, attach myself to as I was growing up in the company. But instead, I was more, I became the uh, CEO when I was 30, which is, you know, don't tell anybody, but that's too young. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You're just barely, you know, figuring out how to be an adult at 30. I, I was, uh, my, my wife and I became parents. She was 30 and I was 28 the first time we had children. And I can remember being 30 going, okay, well, I've got a two-year-old little boy and I, I was still trying to figure things out. Here you are running a company at 30 years old. When you stepped into that, see, I've got to ask you this before I pivot real quick. When you stepped into that, that role, was there a moment that you thought, man, what, what am I getting myself into? What, what am I good enough to take the reins of this company? Yeah. So, you know, when you're 30, that's the challenge, right? Uh, 
you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> so, Hey, I turned 48 yesterday. I still am figuring that concept out, right? Uh, so we had people around me and, you know, it wasn't like I was in a vacuum having to make every decision. So that, that was good. Um, but, you know, it's only when you get a little experience, which comes from making some decisions you wish you hadn't made, uh, where you start to look around and go, hey, wait a second, you know, this, this is serious. This is, this is a big deal. Uh, but, you know, it, it, my, my role and what I felt was my role was to make the business run smooth and, and cr create the platform where dad could go and do what, what he loved to do. Um, that's, that's what I was focused on. And, you know, um, we did that and then, gosh, you know, dad passed away eight years ago. Um, his probably his last corporate engagement was almost 13 years ago. And so our business has had like a complete and total uh, change, right? Because it was built on a personality in his speaking, which is what you want. You know, how many Zig Ziglar's in the world are there? <laughs> One. Uh, but now we continue on and we've got a whole different type of business still based on the same philosophy, but the way we do business is completely different. And the beautiful thing about it is Tom Zig's words and everything that he did from an encouragement and motivational standpoint will live on. I mean, it's almost like you can pick up a book of his and you can hear that deep Southern drawl and, and that warm, welcoming tone to his voice. And it's almost like he's, he's talking in your ear. I, I've got to ask this. If you could have five minutes with your dad, what's the one question you'd like to ask him right now? Oh, well, hopefully I would have more than, you know, 10 seconds to uh, think about that. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mean to put you on the spot because I've thought about it often. I've thought about if I could have five minutes with my dad, what would, what would I want to ask him or, or something like that? But your dad had such a profound impact on people. Um, you know, I, 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 and I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. I apologize for that. It's just, you know, what I was thinking because I think with the, the impact of, of fathers like we had upon our lives, I guess I would ask my dad, you know, hey, do you think I'm doing okay? <laughs> Am I handling yeah. things okay? Yeah, I'd have a two-part question. It would be, uh, you know, dad, based on how you know me, what's, what's, what is it that I should really be digging into and focusing on, and what should I be careful of? Tom, in the, in the last few minutes we've got together, Take me through the biggest obstacle that you've overcome in your life and, and how did you get through it and what was it that carried you from being in that moment to getting through that moment? Because there's a lot of people facing obstacles right now that they've probably never faced before in this time. What was your biggest obstacle? How did you get through it? Well, you know, when I was 33, so I'd been the CEO for three whole years, and I talk about this in the book, Choose to Win. I, you know, I came up with the business idea um, to start a new business and it was gonna be a home run. I mean, it, there's, you know, one of those things that can't fail, blah, blah, blah. Dad loved it. It was his heart too. So he supported it. And we spent, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars at least in consultants 
setting it up to make sure it was right. And they all said the same thing, except for one, <laughs> seven out of eight said, hey, the only, the only danger you have is not preparing enough. This is going to take off and go so fast mm-hmm. that, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to uh, be unprepared. So you've got to invest in it to make it work. And then of course it didn't work. And then a year later, after having lost over $2 million, I had to close that business down. And so the challenge was, uh, I went to bed every night thinking that, gosh, dad spent his whole life building his reputation and I've ruined it in less than a year, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Because we owed a lot of money and I was getting calls every day and, you know, all the things that happen when you, you have a disaster. Now, the reason it didn't work, it wasn't a moral issue or anything like that. It was just couple of bad business decisions. Um, and so then it was the day-to-day grind and it was a meat grinder uh, for me because I took all of that weight, all of that responsibility on my own shoulder because that's what I thought. And every time I would talk to dad, he would be smiling and getting ready for his next talk. And he'd be like, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. We'll get through this. Well, that's because he'd been through some trials of his own and he knew. Um, And so I remember coming home. I don't know if you remember the old Nokia phones. I had one. I had an old Nokia phone. I remember them well. (laughs) And Nokia Nokia was the big kind of cell phone out there at the time. And they had a very distinctive ring. And I would hear that ring and my stomach would turn because it was was somebody calling about when we were going to pay them. (laughs) So I call it the Nokia days. Mm Mm-hmm. And so I would go to work at seven in the morning and leave at six at night and just lock myself in the office and deal with the stuff, uh, you know, and answering every phone call, calling people back and and telling them what we could do. And so I'm driving home and uh, one of my good friends, his name is Bruce Barber. He said, how was your day? And I said, well, wasn't so good. And he said, well, what did you do? And I told him, And then he said, did you do everything you could? Did you answer everybody honestly? Did you return every call? You know, did you know? And I said, yeah. He said, well, then you had a great day. And you need to need to leave the rest of it to God Mm -hmm. and go home and leave all this stuff outside of your house and go enjoy your family. Mm -hmm. Because in God's eyes, you're doing everything you can. And that was a turning point for me. I didn't believe it all 100% right then. But that was a turning point for me that, you know, in life, sometimes life happens to us. Yeah. Right. We didn't do anything to cause it. Uh, You know, I I would say there's probably in excess of 25 million Americans right now, maybe 50 million who are suffering something beyond their control because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Right. And then sometimes you make what you think is a good decision and it ends up being a bad decision. <laughs> right. hundred percent. Then you get the consequences. And so you've, you've got to realize that, man, the only responsibility you really have is to do everything you can to get through it. Uh, and then when you, when you walk that out, God's smiling, he's happy. Mm-hmm. And he uses that for other things. And so that took a while but you know what? We paid off that debt. Our reputation was intact. 
and I got a two and a half million dollar education. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot more expensive than getting a doctorate. That's that's for sure. I uh, know. And so, you know, you think Harvard's expensive. Just try doing that. Uh, but, you know, God, God revealed himself over and over and over in that time. Uh, and I look back at it and I'm like, yeah, you know, I mean, I've just because of that today, when I when I see other people going through the fire, I'm like, hey, you know what? <laughs> you can do this. Well, yeah. Dave Ramsey calls it doing stupid with zeros on the end. So that's oh, <laughs> I had lots of zeros. So. Yeah. Well, I, and, I, and Tom, thank you for sharing that because, again, I think people are are walking through that same fire. They're just trying – they've got a great idea and they, they pour their heart, soul, and spirit into it, and it just didn't work out. So I want to ask you this as we end our conversation today. What's your biggest piece of intentional encouragement for folks out there? You know, it's it's just a simple, simple idea, okay, that – we overestimate what we can do in a short amount of time and we underestimate what we can do over a long period of time. And so if you want to create the life that you've always dreamed of, you can transform your life one simple choice at a time. And so it's a, it's really as simple as replacing little small bad habits with little small good habits and doing that over and over again. And so it's intentionality and it's, it's, it's identifying where it is you want to go and then taking a step every day to get closer to that. And don't worry if the results take a little while to come in because the things in life that are meaningful and, and important, the results always take a little while. So it's just that encouragement, that confidence, to know where you want to go and take that small step every single day to go there. Wow, what a great way to end this conversation. Tom Ziegler, thank you so much. You can find him. Go to ziegler.inc.com. All the resources are there. Highly recommend you do that. Get, get Tom's My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Meat. And the ultimate thanks goes uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ and also follow him on Facebook every day. Tom Ziggler. Tom, I can't and thank until you next enough time, for remember, today and time. This has been fabulous. Thank you so much for being with us on the Kitchen Podcast. Thank you so much, Brian.